0: Well, good morning and welcome to those of you who are here with us in the house. I also want to say welcome to our online uh, church family as well. But before we dive into our new uh, message series this morning, I want to just kind of lay something before you, just kind of a reminder, put, keep it on your uh, radar. One of the things that, that we really value here at New Life is, is church membership. So oftentimes you're here to say membership matters. So we just saw that on the screens with one of our church plants in, in Myrtle Beach. And so I want to encourage you, uh, uh, sometimes I'll be talking to people that have been here uh, for years, like three years, five years, like, hey man, are you a team member here? Like, I think so. I've been going here like since Moses walked the earth. Like, man, have you been to a 201 course? No, I haven't. You're not a member, all right? And so let me encourage you, a lot of you guys have been dating us for a long time. It's time to get hitched, all right? We're not going to cohabitate here at New Life. And so you've been hanging with us. For a little while, it's time to get married. So uh, that, that 201 membership course is coming up in two weeks, two weekends from now. I think it's May 7th. That's a Saturday from 9 to noon right here uh, on our campus. You can register for that online at New Life of Asheville or in the lobby uh, when you leave. So let me just encourage you, if this is your church home, you're like, man, this is our spiritual family, but we're not members, go ahead and take that course, make it uh, official. All right, I'm excited. We're going to be jumping into a brand new message series today through the book of Daniel titled Thriving in Babylon. All right, so if you are new here, you picked a great week to be here. Anytime we start a new series, by the way, great time to bring a friend. So bring a friend next week. Anytime we're to kind of the front series is a great time to invite people in. So I want to encourage you to do that. Daniel, if you're not familiar with that book, is a super exciting narrative. Man, it is full of adventure, suspense, thrill, drama, dreams, visions, heroes, villains, you name it, Daniel's got it. Now you, if you've never been to church in your life, if you're not a Christian, you've still probably heard stories from the book of Daniel. Things like Daniel in the lions' den, the fiery furnace, right? Just to name a couple, and yet through all of that excitement, The drama, the thrill, the thing that we're really going to see emerge, the central theme in this book, is really God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is just a kind of a a big churchy word that means that we really uh, can see God's fingerprints and His working throughout time and history, and even in the details of our own lives. That God is ultimately in control. This world is not, even though it seems chaotic, it's not outside of the control of God. That's His sovereignty. And so we're going to see that shine through. Uh, in such a hopeful and encouraging way in this uh, book. And so my prayer is over the next eight or 10 weeks, however long we're in uh, this series, that this would be a time for our church body where we'd be encouraged, that, that you would step out of this series in a couple of months being a more, a more hopeful person. And my hope is that your trust in God will skyrocket uh, as we go through uh, this book, as it's helped me as I've studied for it. Uh, in the fall of 2006, my wife, Cheryl, and I, uh, we're, we're still relatively uh, newlyweds. We've been married for a couple years, and, uh, and we moved literally across the world uh, to Southeast Asia to serve over there. And uh, to be honest with you, we, we went into that experience um, pr- pretty arrogant. Um, I grew up in South America. She grew up in Africa. We were moving to Asia. Uh, we thought, man, piece of cake, right? We, we grew up in, in other cultures. This is going to be easy and so like our friends or our colleagues were kind of stressed out about culture shock and language acquisition and like all this stuff. We were like, Psh, we got it. This is going to be easy. We got over there and we got worked. I mean, we just, it, it absolutely wrecked us for the six, first six months we were over there. We just looked at each other today like, what are we doing here? You want, you want to get a plane ticket and go home? Like for the first six months, we were just like, what have we done? Everything was different over there. Like, the, the foods, the smells, the traffic, the language, personal space. What personal space? The value system was totally different. For instance, it was an honor-shame culture. So if you've ever been to an honor-shame culture, that's way different than Western culture. And so I learned very quickly over there, if you have a problem with someone, you never go to them directly, which runs counter to everything inside of me, right? If you wrong me, I want to talk to you. Like, let's go grab coffee, uh, it, but they told me very quickly, like, bro, that's not, the, that, that heaps shame on people. So what you do is you find a, a third person, you find a middleman, you talk to them, they go and talk on your behalf. That's the way that you do it over there. So it, it was like, man, we got, we got on the plane in, in one planet, we landed, got off the plane on an entirely different planet. It's totally different. And I think in one sense, we all kind of live between two worlds, right? And I think the challenge of the book of Daniel is that, man, we, we have to choose which world we're going to allow our hearts to belong to. St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers in his most famous work, City of God, describes the world as being made up of two cities. So the city of heaven, which really kind of symbolizes everything about Jesus and his values and his kingdom and his ways. And the city of Babylon, the city of, of man, which symbolizes everything that is worldly in our society. And the bottom line, according to Augustine, is that, listen, whether you know it or not, you belong to one of these two cities in the world. And the challenge, I think, increasingly, especially if you're here, you're watching online, you're a follower of Jesus, the challenge increasingly is to live in Babylon without becoming Babylonian. Because I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but we now live in a culture where the predominant worldview is secularism or secular humanism. Now, if you're older than like 40, 45, you grew up in a predominantly Christian culture. Now, now looking back at that, I think a lot of that was probably a bit of a, of a veneer of Christianity. But nonetheless, it was a culture that valued the moral compass of the Bible and Christian ethics. And that is certainly no longer the case in the culture that we live in. We live in a culture now that anthropologists tell us is a postmodern, post-Christian culture. And while secular culture may, may feel new to you, it may feel new to us, it's really as old as time, right? The, the ideology that man is, is, is really God, that we're captains of our own ship, that we're the masters of our own destiny, that we really get to determine our own standard of morality, like my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. So what's true for me may be true for me, but not true for you. Like that whole ideology that there's no real standard of right or wrong that applies to all humanity, That is secular humanism. That is the religion of of our day, of our culture that we're living in. And what Daniel's going to show us throughout this book is how to not just survive in that kind of culture, but as followers of God, as followers of Christ, how to actually thrive in that kind of culture. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, go to Daniel chapter 1. It's kind of a hard book to find, so if you need to use your table of contents, no no shame in that. I actually had to do that this week, all right? So Daniel chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 Daniel of course is our author this is kind of his biography incredible story starting in verse verse 1 if you don't have access to a bible it'll be on the screen for you Daniel writes this in the 3rd year of the reign of Jehoiakim Jehoiakim the king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieges. So Let us just pause there for a second, a little historical uh, lesson. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel at the time, right? And, and what you need to know about Jehoiakim is he's a, he's a terrible, awful king, right? He, he led his people into idol worship, uh, all kinds of bad stuff, right? So Judah's got this wicked king, leads them down the wrong pathway. There's a second player in the narrative there, you may have noticed. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the most powerful kingdom on planet Earth of that day, Babylon. Babylon, what you need to know about Babylon is they were mathematically advanced, scientifically advanced, militarily advanced. They were so powerful that they would just get bored and invade other kingdoms. Like, man, I'm bored today. I watched all the Netflix shows I wanted to watch. What do you want to do? Let's go take over another kingdom. That, that's just how, how they operated. So in 605 B.C., that's exactly what happened. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, they're like, hey, let's go invade Judah. That's exactly what happens. That we, that's what we just read about in verse 1. Now, what happens is verse 1 gives us the historical context, uh, what we just read. Verse 2, what we're about to read, gives us the interpretation of, of that historical event. So in other words, it gives us God's perspective. Now listen, when we study the Bible, we need both, don't we? we? We need the historical perspective. We need to know what the events are, but we also need to know what God is up to behind the scenes because how many of you know God is always up to something behind the scenes? Even when you can't see it, even when it seems like he's not, he's absolutely at work behind the scenes uh, throughout time and history, even in the details of my life and your life. And Daniel's going to teach us that. So uh, verse 1, we see Babylon invading Judah. Now verse 2, we're going to get the interpretation, like what's really going on here. Verse 2, and the Lord gave. I want you to underline those two words in your Bible. The Lord gave. We're going to see that phrase three times in chapter 1. Daniel is really trying to give us this idea that God is in ultimate control of the events of his life and historical events. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's Nebuchadnezzar with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's in modern day Iraq. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that city is actually where the ta- Tower of Babel uh, was, was built and, and fell, just to give you a little historical context. So, so he brought those things from the temple of God to the house of his own God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So 605 B.C., Babylon invades Judah. They take a bunch of the best and brightest people of uh, that kingdom captive, and they steal a bunch of stuff, including some of the vessels from the temple. And they go back to Babylon, and they put it in the temple of their gods. This is their way of saying, our gods are superior to your god, right? My dad could beat up your dad. That's what what they're doing here. Your God is dead. He's powerless. You should worship the Babylonian gods. You should also know this about the Babylonians. They were a brilliant and also a sinister people in the way that they conquered other cultures. See, the Babylonians figured out pretty quickly, hey, if we just go in and we just burn everything to the ground... We kill everybody there. What's going to happen is invariably there's going to be some people that are out of town. There's going to be some people that escape into the woods. And they're going to reproduce for a couple hundred years. And then we're going to have a rebellion in our hands because they're going to be ticked off, right? Because we killed everybody they knew. And this is not going to be good for our kingdom. So they figured out pretty quickly, hey, what we're going to do is we're actually going to bring these people that we conquer into um, our, our nation, our kingdom, we're going to take the best and the brightest and we're going to assimilate them into our culture. And if we treat them well, over the course of just one or two generations, they will become us. They'll just be a part of our culture. So, so brilliant, not like super dirty, nasty trick, but, but brilliant. And so they go into Judah, they capture some of the best and brightest in Judah. But did you notice what Daniel said in verse 2, how he opens? He says, the Lord gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. Like, say what? Why would God allow his people to be enslaved by a pagan, God-hating, wicked, bloodthirsty kingdom like Babylon? Well, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament at all, beginning in Deuteronomy, really throughout the Old Testament, there's this concept, God was very clear with his covenant people that, hey, listen, I will give you blessing for obedience, but you will get judgment or curse for disobedience, right? The entire Old Testament is a story of, of, of God's people following him, receiving his favor, receiving his blessing. They get comfortable in that. They begin to rebel against God. God brings his judgment. He brings his discipline. They come back to God. And over and over, the cycle goes throughout the whole Old Testament. Well, God is using right here in this instance, he's using Babylon to execute his discipline, his judgment on his people. And in the midst of all of that, he's going to be doing some really cool things Uh, behind the scenes as we're going to see kind of unfold over the next eight or ten weeks. But don't miss this. God is in control of time and history. This is what Daniel wants you to see here. He is always up to something, even when it seems like he's not. So let's pick it up in verse three. Daniel continues. He says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. So this is like uh, the chief of staff for Nebuchadnezzar, this is his right-hand man, very powerful man in the kingdom, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, remember we talked about they would take the, the best and brightest from every culture, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, that word, you'll see that sometimes Chaldeans is just another word for Babylonians, okay? Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Henaniah he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called uh, Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So Daniel and his entourage, his three friends, are some of the ones that are taken captive out of Judah. And they're taken 500 miles to the east to Babylon. Now, scholars believe at the time, Daniel and his friends were teenagers. Right? They would have been in the youth group. Right? They're probably between the ages of 15 and 17 years old. Now, I want you to notice as we go through this, Nebuchadnezzar's, this is devious, but it's brilliant, four-step plan to convert them, to switch their allegiance from the God of the Bible to switch their allegiance to secular pagan culture. And I would point out that in my opinion, the same four-step plan used in Babylon 2,600 years ago is very, very similar to the strategy that our current secular culture is using to uh, seduce the people of God today. So Nebuchadnezzar's four-step devious Conversion plan. Number one, he uses isolation. Right now, notice Daniel and his friends, they're ripped away from their families in Judah. They're taken from everything that they know and they, they love. They're taken from their friends, from their spiritual family, from their church, from their youth group, from their Bible studies. This is one of the oldest strategies in the book to get somebody to crack. Right? That's why militaries, even today in times of war, will use isolation on prisoners of war to get them to break. We've discovered, and Nebuchadnezzar knew this a long time ago, that if you get someone isolated enough, you can begin to brainwash them and begin to reprogram how they think and what they value. Now, we see that happen today in our culture. Oftentimes, this is what it looks like. A kid grows up in church, they're in youth group, they're following the Lord, they go off to college, For the first time, they're isolated from their family, just like Daniel was in Babylon. They're isolated from their Christian friends. They're isolated from their youth group. They're isolated from their small group. They're isolated from their spiritual support system. They start getting challenged by secular professors or new friends with new worldviews. And it does not, listen guys, it does not take long for those who are not deeply rooted in their faith to begin to adopt an entirely new worldview. A trick as old as time, isolation, which is one reason, by the way, that we need each other. This is why the church, the family of God, the spiritual family is so critically important to our spiritual health. The number one thing I I tell uh, graduating high school seniors when they ask for advice is, man, if you're gonna move to Chapel Hill or you're gonna move to Boone, wherever you're going, the first thing, please find a gospel-centered, Bible-believing church and get involved. That, that is your number one priority. I don't care if you make straight A's. I don't care if you find a, a, a good-looking boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, all that is secondary. The, your first priority is to find a Bible-believing, gospel-centered community of faith that's going to help you grow and thrive in your faith over the course of the next four years. Those that follow that advice typically do very well. Those that don't typically do very, very poorly spiritually. Isolation. Strategy is old as time. Nebuchadnezzar was using this 2,600 years ago. It's being used in 2022 in our culture today. Here's step number two in Nebuchadnezzar's deconversion plan. Indoctrination. Look at verse four. He says, they were taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans for three years. For three years. Guys, this is the University of Babylon. That's what this is. They would have been educated about the Babylonian gods, about their culture, about how to worship their gods, about how to make sacrifices to their gods. And these God-loving Hebrew teenagers were being indoctrinated into secular humanism or paganism. Now, let me ask you a question, friends. Do you think that that's happening in our culture today? A 1,000% it's happening today. In fact, I would argue, I would submit to you, that we are all being indoctrinated today, whether we realize it or not. Through media, social media is a big one now, Hollywood, the music industry, certainly the state university system, we are constantly being told implicitly or explicitly that the Christian worldview, right, our sexual ethics, what we believe about sex, gender, marriage, is narrow-minded, outdated, hateful, and on and on it goes. How we spend our money as believers, Right? the fact that we would choose maybe not to, to drive as new a, new a car as we possibly could or live in as big a house as we possibly could or take as expensive of a vacation as we possibly could, that we would sacrifice some of those things in order to live generously and invest in God's kingdom through our local church, through missionaries, to support orphans and widows and refugees to the tune of 10% of what we make every year or 15% or 20%. Like that percent—like is insanity to the world system. We're constantly being indoctrinated into the thought that we need newer, bigger, better. And listen, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself here. Just this past weekend, I was was driving somewhere in Asheville, and I pulled up next to a a brand new cherry red Ford Bronco with a black drop top. And and I'm just going to tell you, I looked at that thing, and I lusted in my heart. Man, that thing was big and mean, and it looked awesome. And for about 15 seconds, I started playing this game in my head. Like if I sold my car and my wife's van and I didn't feed my kids for three months and, and I took out a loan, Maybe I could afford this $1,000 a month car payment or something like that for about 50 And I had to catch myself, right, because I was being seduced into the culture of materialism, right? So whether it has to do with sexual ethics or financial values or how we view education, that our, that our kids are, are a gift from God. They actually belong to God, right? And he's entrusted us as their parents to disciple them and educate them, prepare, prepare, prepare them for a life. That that's not the state's job, the government's job, the school system's job, the church's job. That's our job or how we interact with the art. The movies that we watch, the Netflix shows that we watch, the, the music that we allow into our house, how we interact with the arts around us. Man, we are constantly being indoctrinated into the world system. This is why uh, my family and I, one of the things we love to do is have a family movie night. So occasionally we'll go to the movie theater. Oftentimes we just, you know, watch something at, at home. But what I try to do after each time we watch a movie is we turn the movie off, and my kids probably hate this, but I ask them a question What worldview do you think they were trying to teach us in that movie? So what, was it kind of Eastern mysticism? Was it follow your own heart? Like what, what, what do you think they were, because there's a worldview in every song you listen to, every Netflix show you watch, every movie you watch, we should be aware of it. So I try to teach, and also say, hey, listen, guys, did you, did you see any strands of the gospel in there? Were there, were there any things that would, would remind you of the gospel? I want my kids to learn how to think critically as they engage the culture around them and not just consume and consume and consume. Because if we do that, we're just ultimately being indoctrinated by the spirit of Babylon. Here's the third step to deconversion that Nebuchadnezzar used 2,600 years ago, still active today, I would argue, uh, is assimilation. Assimilation. See, Daniel says they were given a daily portion of the food and wine from the king's table to eat and drink. And I would just call that enticement. See, Nebuchadnezzar was smart. Like, he's not like, man, I'm, he, I'm just going to throw him like, some, uh, some, some bread crust and give him some water. No, he's like, man, I'm going to give them my choicest foods. I'm going to give them my finest cuts of meat. I'm going to give them my best uh, French imported, Italian imported wines. Man, I'm going to wine them and dine them, and I'm going to win their hearts. I'm going to make them love my culture and my gods more than they love their culture and their god, right? And let's be honest, it would have been really easy for Daniel and his friends to compromise here. They're away from home. They're away from mom and dad. They're away from their spiritual family. It would have been easier for them to say, hey, nobody's going to see this. And this this food looks really good. (laughs) This wine looks... Amazing. Like, nobody's going to know that we're breaking the uh, Mosaic dietary laws by eating this bacon encrusted pork chop and lobster. Like, this is actually pretty awesome. Like, this is not going to hurt anybody. Nobody even has to know about it. Let's just compromise a little bit here. And see, that's the thing, guys. We're also constantly being tempted to compromise in small ways in our life that don't seem like a big deal. But a small compromise here, another small compromise there, another one there. And we wake up one day and we realize we have completely sold out. Now, have you noticed that Satan doesn't usually tempt us with one huge compromise? It comes in little bites and steps. Have you noticed that? Like, if you've been walking with Jesus for five years, 10 years, 15 years, he's probably not going to tempt you one day when you wake up and be like, hey, you want to become an atheist? Like that, 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 you know, that's probably not, gonna, that's not gonna, how it's going to go down. I would imagine uh, if someone were to have an affair, like cheat on their, their spouse, you probably don't just walk into the office one day and say to your coworker, hey, you want to wreck each other's lives? Just, like, destroy each other's families? let's go get a hotel room. Let's just, let's just trash our entire lives. That's not what happens. It, it probably happens with, a, with an innocent enough kind of flirtatious comment. She starts laughing at, at all your jokes, and you start to feel like, man, maybe, maybe she gets me a little bit better than my wife does, and you find yourself making excuses to swing by her office when you don't really need to swing by her office. Man, it's those small steps of compromise that lead to devastation in your life, and that's just one example we could use the example of alcohol, or food, or money, or or many other things. So that's one way. It's assimilation. It's it's enticement into the culture. Here's the fourth and final, uh, uh, just evil, devious deconversion step that Nebuchadnezzar used. Number four is identity confusion. Now notice Daniel and his pals get to Babylon and immediately, what do they change about them? Their names. See, they had all inherited these beautiful Hebrew names, and they all had to do with the God of the Bible about God's love, about his justice, about how God is a rescuer. And as soon as they get to Babylon, they're given Babylonian names connected to the Babylonian God. See, Nebuchadnezzar knew what our culture also knows, that if we, man, if we can just get them to abandon their primary God-given identity, we can now replace it with a new one of our choosing. And isn't that exactly what we're seeing happen at a feverish pitch in our culture right now? Listen, friend, I just want to tell you, when elementary school kids are being asked what their preferred pronouns are, which is happening in some public schools today, are you sure you're a boy? At six years old, seven years old. Are you, are you sure you're, you're a girl? Like, what, what is gender? Gender's just a social construct. It's fluid. You can be whatever you want to be. Today, you can be a boy. Tomorrow, you can be a girl. The next day, you could invent a new gender that doesn't even actually exist. You can be whatever you want. I would listen. I would just, I would, I would, submit to you, friends, that is indoctrination, and that is identity confusion. That is exactly what the Babylonians were doing. Twenty six hundred. Listen, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well in 2022 in America. And if there's anything that's clear about Gen Z, and look, I I love Gen Z. I've got to hang out with our our student ministry, our teenagers for the last two or three months upstairs on Wednesday nights. We have some uh, incredible young men and women in our church. Two of my three kids are a part of Gen Z. I love Gen Z. Every generation has its strengths and has its weaknesses, right? I, I was a part of Gen X, kind of grew up in the 90s, and so we were like the teenage angst generation. So we loved like the punk rock that came out of Seattle, like Nirvana and all those bands. And so like we were really weird and kind of depressed. But then we grew up, we got married, we got jobs, and we kind of moved on, right? Every, every generation is, has their strengths and has their weaknesses, Gen Z is no different. Here's the thing that I think is absolutely clear about Gen Z, though. They are wading through a massive identity crisis right now. A massive identity crisis. Unlike one that any generation in America has ever faced. Why? Because they are being indoctrinated by the culture of Babylon to question everything about their identity right down to their very gender. Now, this is, this is not new. This is one of the oldest tricks in the book that our enemy has been using since the beginning of time. So let me just say, friend, brother, sister, beware our culture will attempt to convert you, convert your kids, convert your grandkids to secular religion. And that's what it is it's a religion. Isolation, indoctrination, assimilation, identity, confusion. The same thing that was being used 2,600 years ago in Babylon is being employed today in our culture. The parallels between the times of Daniel and our times are uncanny. It's uncanny. Now, how will Daniel and his friends handle this all-out frontal assault on their God-given identity? Look at verse 8. This is the key verse in the entire chapter. Verse 8, but Daniel, underline this, resolved that he would not defile himself. Come on, Daniel, with the king's food or with a wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. See, Daniel made a decision way before he ever got to Babylon that he would live convictionally and biblically regardless of the culture around him. Now, scholars debate why eating and drinking from the king's stash would violate their conscience, likely because it would have violated the Mosaic dietary laws. Maybe it could have been because the meat and wine would have been used in sacrifices to the Babylonian gods. In any case, we don't really know. This is where Daniel and his friends decided to draw the line in their culture. And let me just say, if, you, if you're here, you know Jesus, you're a Christ follower, man, you too better figure out where to draw the lines in our culture today. Now listen, I, I don't believe in bubble Christianity. Like, I, I don't believe that we should just retreat from the world and create our little weird Christian uh, subcultures that never engages in the world around us. Jesus has called us to be salt and light. In order for us to be salt and light in our culture, we actually have to be in the culture. But I do argue that we need to be different from our culture. We need to be distinct from our culture. We need to be salt and light. Listen, there, I don't know where that line is for you. There may be some shows on Netflix that, that just got some inappropriate stuff that all your friends at school are talking about, all your, your classmates, all, all your coworkers in the office are talking about, and you're just like, man, I'm not going to watch it. That's, that's going to be a line for you. I remember there was a super popular show came out probably eight or 10 years ago, and I went online and I looked it up, and it was like, man, every episode's got nudity and sex scenes and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, man, I'm not, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's posting about it on social media. I'm not, that's a line for me. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cross that line culturally. I would say the name of the show, but half of y'all probably watched it, a bunch of sinners, so I, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say that. But for me, that was a, that was a cultural line. All right, I'm not gonna watch that. I have friends when it comes to the topic of alcohol that ab- abstain from alcohol completely. Right? They're just like, hey, that's a line that I'm not gonna cross culturally. I'm just not, I'm not, that's their line. I have other friends, and it's like, hey, two, two beers, man, or, or one glass of wine. Well, why, why one glass of wine? Not one and a half glasses of wine, not two glasses of wine. Man, because i got to draw the line somewhere, right? You graduate from high school, you go to college, all your friends are going on spring break with their boyfriends and girlfriends, and you're just like, not me. Well, well, why? Because I have to draw the line somewhere, right? I'm not going to put myself in a position to compromise my God-given convictions, Now, I don't know where those lines are for you, but I'm just telling you, you better draw those lines somewhere in our culture or the culture will begin to swallow you whole. You will be indoctrinated. You will be assimilated into a worldly way of life that is dishonoring to God and ultimately not good or healthy for you. I love this quote from James Freeman Clark, a theologian from the 1800s. This is what he said. Strong convictions precede great actions. That's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. Isn't that good? Strong convictions precede great actions. Listen, brother or sister, follower of Jesus, draw those convictional lines in your life in this culture. Just like Daniel did all those years ago. He continues in verse 9. And he says, and God gave. That's the second time he uses that phrase, God gave. He wants you to know God's the one doing this. It's not about me, not about Daniel. I'm not so awesome. This is God's doing. God is sovereign. He's good. He's in control. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youth who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with a king. Right? So they go, they go to the chief of staff. They're like, hey, we, we don't want to eat all this stuff. It's probably sacrificed to idols. Will we, we, you let us just drink water, eat vegetables? And, and the dude's like, hey, it's, it's, my, it's my head on the line. Right? He'll chop my head off. right? So I, I'm not really feeling this right now. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael and Azariah, test your servants. Daniel's like, just give us a chance, man. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh. Uh, another, another translation says they were more robust, like they were fit, than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them. There's the third time that language is used. God gave. He's in control of this situation. God gave them learning and skill and all literature. And when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful men in the world at the time. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I want you to notice two things as Daniel and his friends take a stand in a culture that was anything but godly. Number 1, and I think this is important for us, I think this applies to our lives. They weren't jerks. You notice that? They, they didn't stomp their feet. They didn't they didn't bang their fist on the table about how oppressed they felt by the godless culture. They didn't get on social media and post an angry rant about how evil Nebuchadnezzar was and how ungodly he was. They respectfully went face to face to the chief of the staff and said, "Hey, hey, listen, man. Here's the deal. These are our convictions, and we want to honor you. Will you give us a chance? Just, just test us. We don't, we don't want to. We don't want to get you in trouble with the king. Just, just give us ten days." We want to make you look good. Like, hey, hey if this works, you got nothing to lose. If this works, you're going to look like a genius. This could be a win-win for all of us. See, they were, they were kind. They were wise. They were respectful. They weren't jerks. They weren't foaming at the mouth. They weren't protesting. The second thing I want you to see is it says God gave them favor. The primary point here is not dietary advice. There's are so many Christians that will read Daniel 1 and be like, oh, we've unlocked the secret dietary code to live forever or something like that. Let me get on the Daniel diet. Listen, if that's what you get out of this, that is an exercise in missing the point, right? If you're just like, man, I'm going to become a vegan now because I read Daniel chapter 1, you're, you're missing the point. Now, should we all eat more vegetables? Yeah, probably, right? Should we all drink more water? Yeah, probably, but the point here is that God honored the obedience of these four teenagers that loved him. And God is the one who performed a miracle, right? Like after 10 days of eating nothing but kale salad and drinking tap water, they're jacked, right? Looks like they've been drinking protein shakes, doing CrossFit for the last three years. They look stronger and more vibrant than anyone else in the kingdom. God, gave the, God did that. It's not about the diet. It's about God. God is the one who did that. He gave them favor physically. He gave them favor mentally, right? It says that they had wisdom and understanding in all things. He also gave them favor spiritually, right? Daniel began to be able to interpret the dreams and the visions of the king. And Daniel would go on to become the primary influencer in the most powerful kingdom of the world for scholars believe around 70 years. And he held this advisory position over the course of four kings. You had Nebuchadnezzar, you had two others, and you had Cyrus. So he was the primary advisor in the most powerful kingdom to the most powerful king over the course of seven decades. And get this, some, this is speculation, but some scholars believe that in Matthew chapter 2, you guys remember the wise man who come from the east? By the way, that's where Babylon is. The wise man who come from the east, are following the star of Bethlehem because they want to worship the Messiah. How on earth did they know what to work, look for? And how, how on earth did they know that a Messiah was coming when they were from Babylon? A lot of scholars believe because it was the influence of Daniel in Babylon. Only God can take a teenage boy and make him the primary influencer behind kings and kingdoms. So I want to close just by giving you kind of three convictions to live by that Daniel lived by, that I think we as followers of Jesus should, should live by in our culture today. And these are things I think we should just probably wake up and say to ourselves every single day. So three convictions will be done to live by in Babylon. Number one, I will learn to embrace where God has me. I will learn to embrace where God has me. You've probably heard the saying, bloom where you're planted. Listen, Daniel didn't choose Babylon. No, nobody would choose to be ripped away from their family, their friends, their home, their church family. But God had a bigger plan in mind. And so I don't know what that Babylon is for you in your life. Maybe for some of you it's singleness. Our culture looks at singleness like a like a disease. And yet the Bible calls it a gift to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. So maybe for you it's singleness, maybe for you at school, like, man, I just wish I was in another school. I hate my school. Maybe for you, it's a job. You wish you had a different job. Maybe that's, it's the dumb apartment that you live in where you got these loud neighbors upstairs, downstairs, they're jamming out to tea swift at two o'clock in the morning, you just can't stand it. Or maybe for you, it's standing in long lines at Walmart, right? Every time I go to Walmart, I'm like, why do they only have two cashiers? There's 800 people in here. Well, it makes no sense to me. I start to lose my mind. Listen, your circumstances don't have to make sense to you. I came across this quote from a, another pastor in California. This week, I thought it was really good. I want to share it with you. He said this, When life happens unexpectedly, God is moving supernaturally. Isn't that good? When life happens unexpectedly, God is moving supernaturally. Listen, guys, I've said this before. God, God is usually doing like 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of like one of them. If you're really super spiritual and perceptive, maybe you're aware of like two of them. So what Daniel teaches us is to embrace where God has us because whether it's something we would choose in our life or not choose in our life, he's up to something for our ultimate good and for his glory. Here's the second conviction that we get from the text in terms of how to live in Babylon. I will live convictionally and biblically in my culture. You just need to make that decision now. I will live convictionally and biblically in my culture. This is what Romans 12 says. This will be on the screens for you. Paul writes this, do not be conformed to this world but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, guys, if you're here, you're a Christian, you're watching online, you're a Christian, we are to be a people in the world, but not of the world. And there are two types of people in every culture. There are conformers and there are transformers, right? There are those that just kind of conform to whatever the, the cultural norms and the system of the day are, and those who are transformers of the culture. I could say it this way, in a world of thermometers, be a thermostat. All right, in a world of thermometers, be a thermostat. What do the thermometers do? They just rise and fall based on the temperature around them. All right, so if it gets hotter, then it rises. Gets colder around them. Kind of, kind of follows. You kind of go down. What do thermostats do? They change the temperature in the room. They're transformers, not conformers. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, God has called you to be a transformer in our culture, not a conformer in our culture. Here's the third and the final conviction of how to live in Babylon as a godly man or woman. I will seek God's favor by walking in his ways. Guys, the message in the Bible is clear. God has always promised blessing for obedience for his people and judgment for disobedience. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, I I obeyed God this week, man, I read my Bible four times, I went to church, I I turned in my tithe check, I I did all all the things, I kind of hit all my my checklist this week, so God's going to take away all my problems, and He's going to make me rich, and He's going to give me that cherry red Ford Bronco that I was drooling up. That's not what it means. It means that as we honor God in our life, He begins to honor us. This also doesn't mean that life is going to be easy for us. Like Daniel, you may be kidnapped and smuggled into Babylon, but the message of Daniel is even in Babylon, God is up to something in your life. And you will, if you will honor him, even there, you will find his favor in that place. Which for me, as I get older, I've been walking with Jesus for 20 plus years now, 21, 22 years. What that means for me is that, man, even when I feel like my life stinks, like by every measurable standard, listen guys, if, if I am walking in the presence and the favor of God, I'm good. Like I'm, I'm good. And so as we close this morning, let me just invite you to bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to invite uh, Mike and the, the band to come on up. Here's the thing. The message of Daniel, and I want you to, this is important. I want you to tune into this. The message of Daniel is not go be brave like Daniel. That's not the message. The message of Daniel is not go be smart like Daniel or go, have, uh, go be self-disciplined like Daniel. Because here's the deal you're going to find out pretty quickly that you're never going to be smart enough or brave enough or self-disciplined enough to get to God on your own. The ultimate message of Daniel is that there is a greater Daniel, one who came and who was brave on your behalf, who resisted sin on your behalf, and who, just like Daniel, left his home in heaven and came to our Babylon to live a perfect life that you should have lived but couldn't because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and died a brutal death to pay for your sin and my rebellion. But unlike Daniel, he rose again and offers us new life. And so I just want to say, if you're here, you're watching online, if you don't know Jesus, man, I would love to chat with you. We're going to have other pastors up here after the service, some prayer partners that are chat hosts online, if you're watching online. But if you don't know Jesus, if you have not pledged your allegiance to the greater Daniel, I would just encourage you to make that decision today. To cross that threshold of faith, to place all of your trust and all of your faith in the one who made you and knows you and loves you deeply and intimately and wants the best for you. And if you're here and you know Jesus, man, you know the greater Daniel, like you've given your life to Christ, my encouragement to you this morning would simply be to press into Jesus, to lean into Jesus this week. Would you enjoy him? Would you trust that ultimately His ways are what's best for your life and will lead to His glory? Would you enjoy Him this week? Let's pray, and then we're gonna sing. Heavenly Father, we come to You, and uh, man, we are grateful for these ancient words written thousands of years ago and yet speak perfectly, flawlessly, right into our culture in 2022 in the United States of America. Your word says that the scriptures are, are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So God, we, we thank you that you've given us your word, inspired by your spirit, that we don't have to wonder what your plan is for our life. We don't have to follow the ever-shifting winds of culture around us, that you've given us your timeless word and your standard, not because you want to hem us in or limit our fun, but because you love us and want us to thrive and live life as free men and free women. God, so would you help us to trust your ways? Would you help us to embrace where you have us in life? Embrace whatever Babylon we're in, knowing and trusting, God, that you are are up to something behind the scenes, always, because you love your sons and you love your daughters. Help us to walk in that trust and that truth this week. We love you, and we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship our King.